This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 103 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is Jeff Bridges the beloved Oscar-winning actor who has been making great movies for almost a half century. The 66-year-old's credits include The Last Picture Show, Fat City, The Iceman Cometh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Starman, The Fabulous Baker Boys, The Fisher King, The Big Lebowski, The Contender, Seabiscuit, Crazy Heart, True Grit, and, most recently, Hell or High Water. In that film, which was released in August and for which he is now widely regarded as the man to beat in the Best Supporting Actor Oscar race, Bridges plays a chatty Texas ranger in post-recession Texas, working with his partner to solve one last case, a string of bank robberies, before his retirement. Much like his character in that film, Bridges himself is a hell of a lot of fun to spend time with. And over the course of our conversation, we cover a lot of ground. Bridges discusses what it was like growing up as the son of Sea Hunt star Lloyd Bridges and the younger brother of actor Bo Bridges, why he resisted a career in acting even after his earliest star-making roles, how his burgeoning career was impacted by his involvement with the gigantic flops King Kong and Heaven's Gate, the ways in which the part of the dude in The Big Lebowski reinvigorated his career and follows him to this day, the breakout success of Hell or High Water, which, not coincidentally, is reminiscent of some of the early films in which he starred, and why he keeps acting to this day. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Mr. Bridges, thank you so much for doing this. Wonderful to be here. To begin with, we always just ask, where were you born and raised? I was born in Los Angeles and raised in Los Angeles. And that's in large part, I would assume, because of your parents' profession. Can you share what that was for anyone who might not? Yeah, my uh, father, uh, Lloyd Bridges, and my mom, uh, Dorothy Bridges, they met at UCLA and uh, raised their family right here in L.A. And terrific actors. And I guess for you, you just grew up around all of that. Is that the reason for your early interest in this? Or what? how did that work with your parents? Were they into yeah. you being a part of it or not being part of it? Well, I like to say that I'm a product of nepotism. And that really <laughs> rings true for me because my father, Lloyd Bridges, unlike a lot of guys in showbiz, really encouraged his kids to go into showbiz. He just loved all the aspects of it. You know, what we're doing here, the interviewing, of course, the acting, and, you know, working with people and traveling, and he loved all that, and he wanted to turn his kids on to it. You know, I can remember maybe my first, my earliest memories, although maybe I can even go back before I can remember. My first role was in a film called The Company She Keeps with Jane Greer. And my parents were visiting the set, visiting the director, John Cromwell, who was directing that film. And they needed a baby in this particular scene. And I was 
there in my mother's arms, and my mom said, here, take my kid. <laughs> and so she gave him to Jane, and I was a rather happy baby. I was supposed to be a crying baby in the movie, and my mother said, oh, just pinch him, <laughs> and he'll cry. And of course, Jane pinched me, and I cried. Right. Years later, many years later, like maybe, you know, 35 years later, I'm in a movie with Jane doing a, a, a remake of a wonderful movie out of the past that she yes. made with Robert Mitchum. And we're doing, we have a scene together in the movie. And I got to say to her, Jane, I'm having a little trouble emoting here. How about a little, a little help? Give me a pinch. There's a lot of people that would have liked to be pinched by Jane Greer. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Well, she's, you know, a great actress. <laughs> So then my first memories of, of acting is yeah. when I'm about eight years old yeah. and my dad had this uh, TV show back in those days called Sea Hunt. Great. And he said, hey, come on, do, you know, come to work with dad. I said, really? He says, come on, you get to get out of school. You know, it'll be fun playing with dad. I said, okay. So whenever there was a, you know, part for a kid about my age in this sea hunt uh, you know tv show that uh, my dad would get me to do it and the same would go for my older brother Bo who's yeah. 8 years older than I am and if there was a part for him he'd be so uh, that's kind of how it all started with me my understanding from reading some other things to prepare for this was that you kind of though as you got older initially at least resisted that this would be the, your 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 path beyond childhood why was that? It, was it just sort of, I don't want to do what my parents well, do? Well, you know, I mentioned the whole nepotism thing, you know, and as a kid, you know, you don't want to get a job just because of who your dad or mom is. And, you know, like most kids, you don't want to do what your parents want you to do. <laughs> my parents wanted me to, you know, get into the acting thing. And I was, you know, I had other interests in art and, and music. And I uh, questioned whether I was going to make this my you know, my, the main thrust of my life as a career. And I had quite a few movies under my belt, maybe about, uh, you know, maybe 12, 15 movies. And I was still wondering if this is something I was really going to do. And I had just finished a movie called The Last American Hero. It was mm -hmm. about, you know, a fictitious version of Junior Johnson, the famous stock car racer. And I had a great time doing the movie, but as often happens after a movie, I think, gee, I don't know if I want to do this again. That that pretend muscle or whatever you want to call it is kind of, you know, tired, especially back in those days. And I got a call about a week after I had finished that movie from my agent. He was very excited and told me that I'd just been offered The Iceman Cometh, you know, that John Frankenheimer was directing and Frederick March, Lee Marvin, Robert Ryan were going to be in it. And, and I said, oh, that's great, but uh, tell him thanks. But I'm, I'm bushed. I think I'm going to pass. And he goes, you're going to pass? I say, yeah, I'm bushed. He says, okay. And about five minutes after I hung up, the director, Lamont Johnson, from the movie I just finished, yeah. The Last American Hero, called me up. And he said, I hear you pass on, you know, the Iceman cometh. I said, yeah, you know, I'm bushed, you know. He says, you're bushed. You're, you're an ass. And he hung up on me. <laughs> So I thought, well, I'll take this as an opportunity to really do a little experiment on myself, which I like to do from time to time. And this experiment was, well, you're wondering if you're going to do this acting thing, and you know that you, to be a professional, you have to do it when you don't feel like it. You don't feel like it, so just throw yourself into this, and maybe this will be the final nail in the acting coffin. You know, so 
It was an unusual experience in that it was about an eight-week rehearsal period, and then we shot for two. So it was eight weeks hanging out with these great masters, you know, acting masters, and hanging out with them. I had a wonderful experience doing that and learning about uh, anxiety and fear, seeing it in these these guys that they still had it. You yeah. know? So it kind of put my own demons, not to rest exactly, but made them a little more playful. You know, <laughs> they were buddies of mine, you know. And you were then newly committed to... And, and so then I kind of got into the acting thing and said, oh, yeah, this is something I can do. Well, let me ask you about... That's so fascinating. There were, But there were even a couple of great performances that you gave before that that I have to ask you about because I oh, think the really? first big thing in a way would you would you agree was the last picture show Oh absolutely that was I think my second or third film and that was you know a huge success and I you know got a nomination yeah. for an award and uh, I mean some of those scenes where you're fighting with your best friend or you're down by the river with Ben oh, Johnson Yeah it was a again wonderful yeah. cast Ben Johnson you know Tim Bottoms yeah. and Ellen Burstyn you know Eileen Brennan just Cloris Leachman you know amazing and then, of course, Peter Bogdanovich was such a great director, and he's still making great movies. She's Funny That Way is one of his latest movies that ah. I saw not too long ago. It was terrific. So it's interesting, though, for people that go back, like I do every so often, and watch that movie, to think that even though you're so good in that, you were questioning what yourself at that time still, right, yeah. whether you wanted to do this. Yeah. And then the next one that was also pre-Iceman Cometh would have been Fat City with another great director, with John Huston. And John Huston and Stacy Keach, yeah. another terrific. We should remind people you're playing this small-time boxer, basically. And yeah. He's your mentor. And again, I would think you're, this, John Huston, this is like treasure of the Sierra Madre, all these great things. Yeah. And it was still a question for you, though. Well, I think a part of this question that kept coming up into my mind was this anxiety or this fear aspect of this life, you know, of acting. And how to, how to handle that. And I think it's not only an aspect of acting, but it's just an aspect of life. You know, this how you deal with fear and anxiety. And it would really surface when I engaged in the acting because it was something that I really wanted to do well. I felt that I was given a gift and I really wanted to do it justice. And it, that created quite a bit of anxiety, you know. Was that put to rest a little bit by, if not the first Oscar nomination for Last Picture Show, then post-Iceman Cometh the next year, 74, you do Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and you get a second nomination. Is this is this starting to make you feel... It's starting to befriend my fear and my anxiety, but that's yeah. still a challenge you know, for me. As we talk here, I can feel you know, a, a skosh of that you know, emotion. I remember with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, it was Michael Cimino's first movie. And I remember he cast me in this movie, and I'm up in Montana, and uh, it's great, but I'm feeling this, you know, surges of anxiety. I say, why did they cast me? I don't feel like this guy. How am I going to pull this off? And I finally confessed to him, like the day before we were shooting, I said, Mike, I know this is kind of late in the game to be telling you this, but I don't... I got to say, I don't know why you hired me. I won't hold it against you if you fire me on the spot. You know, there are probably a lot of, you know, guys in Montana that are more suited for this role than I am. And uh, he looked at me for a long time, and he finally said, you know the game Tag? I said, yeah. And then he touched me, and he says, 
you're it. <laughs> I said, I said, what do you mean? He says, you're it. You know, he says, I understand all your anxiety and fear about it, but that doesn't matter. You are the guy. So whatever you do, that's the guy. That and that, sense. like, oh, I relax. You know, so yeah. it's, it's kind of like this. It's a. It never entirely goes away, but there are, as I look back and as you ask me these different questions, I'm remembering different times when that anxiety was relieved by uh -huh. a certain teaching, you know, whether it's these, you know, Frederick March, you know, yeah. seeing him strain over his, you know, doing justice to this great play, you know, or Chimino saying, you know, you're it, don't worry about it. Right. You know, all of those things help. Uh, How much... Did it help the year after Thunderbolt and Lightfoot that on the set of a movie Rancho Deluxe, I think your life changed in a major way, began to change in a major way, right? Oh, that was a big change for me. I think that was the second film that Thunderbolt and Lightfoot was shot in Montana, and so was a Rancho Deluxe. And towards the end of shooting, I'm doing a scene with Sam Waterston and uh, Harry Dean Stanton and Richard Bright in this kind of dude ranch place where they used to do brain surgery a hundred years ago. It was this beautiful big pool with a natural hot spring. And I can't take my eyes off this waitress, I guess she, is what she was, or a maid. I can't figure out what exactly Playing she was. Playing one or actually No, she was a, a woman working in the hotel, a young uh -huh. girl. Turns out she was working her way through, you know, for college. And she had two black eyes and a broken nose. And I finally got my courage up to ask her out. And she said, no, uh, it's a small town. Maybe I'll see you around. And, <laughs> and her prophecy proved true. And at the rap party, she happened to be there. And we danced. And then a few weeks after the movie wrapped, I ended up driving back up there to you know, pick her up and take her home. And she, and she has now been your wife for how many years? My <laughs> wife. We're going on, God, is it 40 or something like that? <laughs> That's uh, awesome. So... I want to ask you about two movies in the l sort of later 70s where I guess as sort of a, a newer experience for you, these movies, they were A, very big in terms of scale and budget and all that, and then did not go over especially well. I wonder how you handled that with first with Dino De Laurentiis' King Kong in 76, and then with Heaven's Gate, which you're back with Chimino. And these are two that I just wonder if there was some lesson from the experience that you were able to take away. Well, I'm going to say I don't know about lessons, but let's just uh, jump in here. <laughs> King Kong, I remember back in the, you know, my decision for making that movie was because I remember playing sick when I was a kid so I could stay home and watch the original King Kong <laughs> when I was, you know. That's great. And so when I got a chance to um, be in it, I jumped in, uh, in and uh, it was like nine months, I think, we shot that thing. And... Uh, you know, you compare it with the most recent uh, King Kong, which I thought was, you know, brilliant. And our monkey looked just, you know, terrible. <laughs> you know, you had, I think it was Rick Baker, you know, famous yeah, making yeah. guy. I think he was his first guy, you know, first guy at the time in the, in the monkey suit. Right. So he was, he had that. <laughs> then we had this 40-foot giant, you know, plaster Paris or whatever it was made out of monkey. And there was, everybody was upset because they made two left hands. <laughs> You know, things like that, you know. And I, I could go on, tell you stories about King Kong, you know, forever. I mean, I got to meet um, Philippe Petit, you know, the yeah, guy who the guy walked, you know. Uh, walked between the you know, We were there at the trade towers where the monkey 
you know, was falling on the ground and and this little French guy comes, how do you like my, my temple? I said, your temple? He says, yeah, I walked across the thing. And so it was the, that year that, we, wow. that he did that. And so that was, uh, that was wonderful. And Jessica Lang, I mean, she really, you know, and Charles Grodin, both of them, I thought, really nailed the tone of the movie very, very well. You know, the, you know making it kind of, uh, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but also having some real sentiment about the thing. And uh, Heaven's Gate, uh, God, I could talk a long time about that, too, but that was, you know, Chimino had just won uh, the Oscar for uh, The Deer Hunter, mm-hmm. and he was the darling of Hollywood, and he said, do whatever you want. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I've got an epic Western I'm going to do, and, you know, he could tell the story of the Johnson County Wars, which is an incredible time in our country where these cattle barons, which were kind of like, I guess, the oil guys today, along with the president of the United States, hired 100 Texas gunmen to come up to Wyoming and kill all of these uh, European guys that were eating the, the walking hamburgers mm-hmm. that were walking around, you know, in the middle <laughs> right. of winter. Right. So they, they got to kill those guys, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the immigrants revolt and end up ganging up on the Texas gunmen and turning them away. So it was a, it's a wonderful story. And Chris Christopherson was in it, and I remember, you know, a lot of there's a lot of auxiliary stuff that happens mm-hmm. in making movies, and on that one, the music was a big thing. That's where I met my buddy T Bone Burnett oh, yeah. and Stephen Bruton. Both of those guys worked on uh, Crazy Heart, and I've been, you know, remained friends with those guys for so many years. So it sounds like the experience of both of those movies were not negative in any way. Oh no, no, it's never no, it's. There's always wonderful people that you kind of gravitate towards in these movie things. But it was interesting working with Mike Cimino on his first movie, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and that was Clint Eastwood produced that and was starring in that. And Clint is kind of, you know, well-known for doing one or two takes. And it was me, the young punk, who would say, oh, Mike, can I do one more? i got an idea. He said, well, I'll have to ask the boss. Clint would say, yeah, give the kid another shot. So I love that. And then when we did Heaven's Gate, we would do... You know, 60 takes, you know, just over and over. And it was, I kind of understand it from the, uh, from his side, you know, about, you know, waiting for that, that kind of happy accident, something that, you know, happens that uh, will be captured on a film and will be great. And that did happen in several occasions. For an actor, it's kind of frustrating because you don't know when everybody's going to cook together. But that film got such terrible reviews when it came out. They really were hunting for his head, I think, because he created this kind of adversarial relationship with the studio Mm -hmm. and the press because he didn't want anybody messing with his baby there. You know, he was making this movie up in Montana. He didn't want other chefs uh, in there giving him ideas or he didn't want to explain himself or anything like that. And he was, you know, at work, you know, intense, intense work. And so that created a certain, oh, well, we're going to get you, you know. And then when it came out, it came out in a time when MTV was very hot and it was all that fast editing and Heaven's Gate is rather slow mm-hmm. it paced. You know, you've got to get with the filmmaker's uh, rhythm to really enjoy it. So it was, you know, kind of panned by most of the critics in those days, but now it's considered yeah, it's a classic. Yeah. yeah, and it's I think it's it's a wonderful film. I enjoy it. More every time I see it. Was the perception of those being failures at that time, though, did that in any way hinder your 
opportunities in the immediate years afterwards, or, or did you feel you were able to bounce back personally? No. Usually the way it works is, you know, it takes quite a while for a movie after it's been finished to cut it and, uh, you know, wait for the proper time for it to be released and everything. So usually I'm on to another project. And it's a bit like, uh, you know, when the movie comes out, it's a bit like having a horse in the race. You know, you're right. kind of rooting for it, but I've already been paid. I don't have any <laughs> money on the horse, you know, so I'm like, oh, it didn't work. Okay, well, I'm on to the next right. thing. You know. A lot of people have, I'm sure, asked you, and there's sort of an assumption for, for some people who maybe don't know you, that the dude is maybe the character that's closest to you. However, what I've read and heard from other people is that the role of yours that they feel maybe is actually more like the real Jeff Bridges is the one of the alien in Starman. Do you see any, is there any uh, merit to that where you sort of marvel at life? Yeah, that's funny. You know, I approach all the roles in a similar way where the, you know, the first thing you do is you, you know, you read the script and the script will tell you quite a bit about the character, what you say about yourself, what the other characters say about you and so forth. So that tells you kind of the, the gist of it. And then I look inside myself and think what aspects of myself that I might use or some I, I might even magnify a bit and some that don't fit, I'll kick to the side, you know. And then if you're lucky, you've got some living role models that you can, you know, you know maybe even be on the, on the set. Now, for instance, with Starman, you know, I read the script and it was alien, you know, I looked inside myself and said, well, you know, what do, what do I have like that? I said, well, I just had some, my kids, you know, I said, well, look at my kids. Look, they're kind of, you know, so everything's so fresh to them. I studied them a bit. And then I said, let me look in my phone book and see which friends of mine I would not be surprised if I found out they were actually aliens. <laughs> And I came across this one guy's name, a Russell Clark, who was a dancer, wonderful modern dancer, and very long limbs and very elegant. I said, oh, yeah, Russell. I said, oh, so I'll give Russell a call. And I figured if I can work on that first scene where a star man is kind of being born, you know, and if I can work out my movements, and Russell might be a good guy to do that with, then the, the movie would just be a matter of becoming more gradually more human, you know. So that's kind of how, you know, how I approach that. Do you seek out roles where they involve the things that you're passionate about in your own life? So obviously music has been a recurring theme in a number of your movies, the one that you, you ended up winning the Oscar for, Crazy Heart. But even way before that, the one that I think maybe made you a little reticent about doing Crazy Heart was Fabulous Baker Boys back in... 89 there's music element there do you think if you were to psychoanalyze yourself a little bit is that part of what draws you to the roles oh i'm already interested in music here's a way to be around music for a little while or something like that well music i love i love music and the age i am now you know 66 i can't believe it man I'm, <laughs> i've got a rock and roll band man i'm living oh, out my awesome. you know i'm thinking about my dad now you know when i said dad i'm thinking about maybe getting into music he said jeff don't be crazy he says you know that's what's wonderful about acting is you're going to be called upon to use all of your interests and talents you know and I said oh well, okay and I you know resisted it but I'm glad I finally listened to the man because he was yeah. he was right it's a little late yeah but here at, at my age I've got a little you know rock and roll band the abiders and we you know make records are on iTunes you know and I go out and I 
tour and I'm, I have all that live and that side of life is cooking for me. But That's I, awesome. as far as the movies, Fabulous Baker Boys, that was a great experience. And, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. That yeah. was, you know, a wonderful thing. But both the, both those movies, that movie and Crazy Heart, both of them had tremendous anxiety uh, bubbled up in me because of those movies. Again, because they are such gifts. You know, here's, you know, what a dream. In Crazy Heart, not only to do a great movie about music, but to work with your buddy, you know, your two buddies, T-Bone and Stephen Bruden. And that just caused me such anxiety because I didn't want to blow it. You know, you keep, if you keep the music movie as a dream in your mind, it's kind of safe there. But when you actually have to do it, you know, (laughs) there's that chance you might just fall on your ass. Right, right. And just to say something about Baker Boys, you know, Steve Clovis, this young guy, I think he wrote it when he was about 24 years old or something like, directed it when he was uh, 26 or something like that. Got to work with my brother, Michelle. It was just, you know, I had to pinch myself. Bo and I would have lunch every day. He said, can you believe what we're getting to do, (laughs) man? This is so much fun. Well, and speaking of uh, people who I imagine would be fun co-stars, the one that was... After that, or very shortly after that, with Fisher King, you're playing this DJ and your co-star. Robin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Robin Williams. Oh, man. Yeah. So Terry that. Gilliam directed us, you know. Right. The, the one, though, that, of course, I got to touch upon here. We mentioned him a little earlier. The Dude. I just wonder when you first, how you first heard about The Big Lebowski and what your initial reactions were to it, because... I could see, you know, on on paper, it might seem a little nuts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, I ran it. I was a fan of the Coen brothers with Blood Simple and some of their early stuff, and I ran into them somewhere. I can't remember where, and they said, oh, we're writing something for you. I said, oh, great, because I love you guys. You know, it would be wonderful to do a movie together, you know. And they said, well, we've got something. We'll get it to you. And maybe a year or two later, I get this movie, and I read, and I say, what? You know, have you guys been spying uh, on me from, from some high school party? Or, you know, because, you know, you think of the roles that I played up to that, they had nothing to do with that guy, really, yeah. you know. It was a wonderful experience. Again, you know, the the guys that the Coen brothers assembled to play with, you know, John Goodman and Turturro, you know, and, oh, God, Buscemi. What? It was just it's a great group of guys and uh, the the Coen brothers they're masters you know why do people I mean you you've played a lot of memorable characters in very good movies why is that one that has such an enduring appeal for people what is it about this guy well it's it's uh, it's not I mean for one thing it's just a great movie you know it'd be one of my favorite movies whether I was in it or not mm-hmm. you know I think uh, like most art you know, think creative things. They look, it looks like it's no big deal. It was like, there's, you don't see the effort. Yeah. It's just like, you know. But that's you. you, you well, it's not only me. No, it's the Coen brothers, man. It's writing. Like, every fuck, every man, everything. They, you know, often people say, you improvise. No, I said, no, that's not improvise. That's all on the page. That's how good these guys are, you know. And it just seems like it's it's nothing, you know. But as you watch it and people watch it over and over yeah. and get more and more out of it, as, as I do. Right. And it's just like eating popcorn, man. Just one great scene, you know. And from your perspective, though, let's set aside the humility. We said their contributions they made look easy. But you made it look like this is 
you know, this is just a guy lounging around. But for you, what were the what were the challenges of getting that guy? Well, I made a choice to not get high while I was making the movie. <laughs> you know. What went into that? Because you could have easily... Well, but like the dialogue, you know, it's like very intricate. You know, movies are often, it's like you're pulling off a magic trick. You know, it's an illusion. You know, you want it to seem like it's happening for the first time, that it's, you're just a fly on the wall watching something, you know, and that's... It takes some effort to make it look effortless, you know, it's just like a thing, you know, so you, so I didn't want to be high when I had to get all those lines right. But, you know, that was the thing. Well, I'll just play it. No, 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 that's not the way to go. I got such a kick out of the fact that if not your next movie, I think there was Arlington Road in between, but then you're, you go from playing the dude to playing the president of the United yeah, States. Yeah, that and, was a fun. Yeah, in the fun. contender. I always, early on in my career, I'm not so concerned about this now, but. My father, in his career, kind of, you know, well, in the middle of his career, when he got Sea Hunt, he developed a very strong persona of this Mike Nelson character, the skin diver. People actually thought he was a skin diver, you know. <laughs> so that is a great compliment, you know, for an actor. But it also caused him some struggles because he's a very... You know, he did, you know, like Shakespeare. He mm -hmm. replaced Richard Kiley in Man of La Mancha on Broadway, you know. Great comedian, you know, mm -hmm. all kinds of things, and so I could see how how painful it was for him to be typecast. And he got many after that. He got a lot of skin diving scripts, yeah. you know. So I said, <laughs> "Shit, I better really concentrate on not developing yeah. too strong a persona." So I tried to shift it up. So when I got the script, that Rod Lurie script of the Contender, not only was it a terrific script. But I said, oh, I get to play the president, which is like diametrically opposed right. from the dude, right. you know. And so Rod and I got a kick out of that. No, like it's that. great. And I just think that started this. I wonder what if you agree, but it seems like there was a run there. Maybe you would say it started with the Big Lebowski where there was renewed interest or appreciation in you or whatever, where there's so many great performances back to back to back to back. We've got, I know we can't talk about all of them, but I mean, you're the owner of the horse in Seabiscuit. You're in the door on the floor, which I think was great. And leading up to what we were talking about earlier with this alcoholic singer in Crazy Heart, and I just found it very interesting that with that one, it's a first-time director, Scott Cooper, and at the time you read it, no music. How, did, how could you know what the music would be? And so for you, it was not an immediate yes, right? This role that eventually did bring you the Oscar, you almost didn't yeah, do it. Well, yeah, well, you know, you mentioned the first-time directors. I've had such great luck with first-time directors from Mike Cimino to Clo Steve Clovis to Kip Williams, the guy who directed Door on the Floor. These are all first-time guys, yeah. you know, and, you know, you look at Citizen Kane, you know, we haven't made too, you know, much better movie than that. And no. Orson Welles was, what, 25? 26, 26 yeah, when yeah, he made that thing, you know. So as a young guy... Going out, you don't know what you can't do, so you just let your mind go, and you come up with some fresh, wonderful stuff. And then if you, you know, put around you, you know, experts in their field who aren't too uh, secretive about all their talents, and they share that with you, you get some wonderful results. So the first time director didn't bother me that much, and I got a, a great feeling from Scott right off the bat, and his script was a good one, but they didn't have any music to it. And... I feel like I want to talk a little bit about my my general process of yeah, you know getting you know please. agreeing to do films, and I really try hard not to 
work, not to engage, because I know what it takes. You know, you take yourself out of the, the mix for a while. You're not going to be able to do other movies that you don't even know what those movies are, once you commit, you know, but it takes that time. And I know the work it takes, and it's also, it also takes me away from my family and all the other stuff I like to do. So I really try hard not to engage, do my best to engage. And I told you already about the my anxiety about doing a music movie, you know. Mm -hmm. When I got the Crazy Heart script, I said, yeah, but there's no music. Wow, that was a close one, man. <laughs> I almost got sucked into that, you know. So I thought I'd pull it. And then I ran into T-Bone, my buddy T-Bone Burnett, and he said, what do you think about this Crazy Heart movie? I said, why, why are you thinking about doing it? And he said, well, I'll do it if you do it. <laughs> And I said, yeah, but there's no music. And he says, oh, that's the easy part. Don't worry. I said, oh, shit, here we go, man. And so we jumped in, and he hired our good buddy, Stephen Bruton, who uh, T-Bone grew up with in Texas. And he became, like, my right-hand guy through the whole— but not only my right-hand guy, but he was Scott's, all of our— you know, he was the fellow who kept us uh, authentic through that whole movie and really said, this is what it's like being a musician on the road and— and sadly, he passed he away, passed away shortly, meeting, after, shortly after the movie. Yeah. He got to see it, you know, oh, which that's is great. great. Yeah. And I think it's dedicated to him. Yeah. So in terms of your own inspirations for that character, I know there were some real people, but also you have talked about the fact that there were aspects of yourself musically, maybe some of the shortcomings of this of this guy. I just wonder if you can talk about who or what you drew upon to, to make him such a vivid yeah, character. Yeah, well... Um, Scott, one of his first bits of directors, was saying that, you know, Bad Blake would be like the fifth outlaw, you know, with Johnny Whalen and oh, Chris, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and uh, Willie. Yeah. So I looked to those guys, and I had worked with Chris on Heaven's Gate, and whenever we bump into each other, we laugh because we kind of, we look at each other, it's like looking in the mirror in a way, <laughs> when we both have beards and, you know, our hair is right. similar, you know, we laugh at each other, and we say we got to play brothers sometime. So those guys were certainly role models. And Stephen was a huge, you know, you know, he, he was there every day, you know. And then as far as myself, well, I'm a, you know, certainly a music lover and have been playing, you know, guitar since I was a kid. And my dear friend John Goodwin is a writer in Nashville. He wrote kind of the credit song, um, Hold On You in uh, Crazy Heart. So that was something that we all, you know, brought to the party. And obviously resulted in one of the most overdue Oscars of, of all time. Everybody felt like how could it, how they were shocked when you they realized you didn't have one up until that point. So that must have been nice. And I just wonder, you're back with the Coen brothers a year later, back at the Oscars a year later, True Grit. This was 12 years after Big Lebowski. Was the experience any different on that? Obviously, period-wise, it's totally yeah. different. But was working with them sort of the same experience same process yeah they make it real easy and it's like no big deal you know not a big sweat you know just everything's like falling off a log with those guys you know remember when they first asked me that you know say hey you want to do this movie i said but that you know that's john wayne yeah. you know you've already been a big movie you why are you going to redo that movie so have you read the charles portis book i said no so I read that and I said, oh, now I understand. It reads like a Coen Brothers right. script. I mean, it's so perfect for them right. to do. And that looked like a fun guy to play. Oh, yeah. That was a, I had a ball with that. So, all right. Now I have to ask you about, or I'm very excited to ask you about this 2016 film that I think is as good as 
anyone that I've seen this year. I try to see everything. This is Hell or High Water. You're playing a retiring Texas Ranger on his last case, Ranger Marcus Hamilton. And I guess I, I wonder, it seems like probably with any movie, the thing that first attracts you is the script. But what was it about Taylor Sheridan's script that really won you over, if you could pinpoint it? Well, it it, it just rang up authenticity. You know, it felt like this writer really knew what he was talking about. You know, um, every once in a while you come across a script like that where the the writer and the, or the director, or both, if you're lucky, are both just uh, steeped in the material. Uh, Rod Lurie was very much that way and the contender, really, really into politics. And so Taylor, you know, grew up in Texas. He it turns out that he had a, a cousin, a Parnell McNamara, who was a marshal that, you know, kind of loosely my character is based on. And so that was the first thing that popped at me, and, and the dialogue, how it just it just rang real, you know, not only authentic for the genre and the people that he was talking about, but just the lines, you know, the, the, the lyrics of the song, how they just, it rang true. Yeah. And then also this ambiguity of, of you know, of, you know, right and wrong, you know, we're so ready as human beings to, you know, say, this is right, that's wrong, you know, but... When you really get into it, you know, check out the other person's point of view. It's a big gray area. I found it also interesting that the director, David McKenzie, says that the movie's vibe, Hell or High Water's vibe, was very much informed by movies that you did early in your career. He cited The Last Picture Show and Fat City and Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Did you know that while you were making it? And what do you make of that? Yeah, well, he said that. He told me that early on. And I... Before I got on board, I looked at his movie, Start Up, which is a spectacular movie, made for very little money, which a lot of those movies that he quoted back in the day, there was, they weren't kind of, they were kind of middle budget movies, which now I'm happy to say that we're seeing more of those. But, you know, a few years ago, those were very hard movies to, Uh it was either the $200 million movie or the, you know, the $5 million movie or something like that. So I when I when I saw Start Up, I said, "Oh, this guy really knows what he's doing. He's gonna you know putting these two guys together, Taylor Sheridan, his script, and David, his movie making abilities. You know, we have a good chance of you know, doing justice to this story." In terms of genre, people are using all different descriptions for this one, but it seems like they want to call it a western. It's set in the pretty much the present day post recession Texas, but it's still. There are elements of the classic Westerns that, you know, including your, I mean, your father was in High Noon. That was one of the greats. And so I just wonder, is there a reason why up through True Grit and now this, do you find that that's a genre that just interests you a lot? Is there some reason that the Westerns? Oh, yeah. I mean, mean, my father was in a lot of great Westerns. I remember as a kid, you know, him coming home dressed up like a cowboy and me putting on his boots and his hat. And, you know, I, I was just thrilled. I've always love westerns myself and that is a particularly interesting bit of american history that you know happened for a a short period of time but there's so many wonderful stories and you know i've got to play in some really good ones and about the thing about that people that think it's a western i think a lot of that has to do with the hat (laughs) you know you get put some cowboy hats you you know, any movie, you put some cowboy hats on the guys and you say, oh, that could be a Western. <laughs> you, a know, Western. you could, you know, any any movie, any story could be a, a Western. In right. A way. Now, the other thing, people that are, you know, sometimes critics and journalists and pundits overanalyze things, but they, there are a lot of people that 
think this may be sort of a study of the role of guns in in present day America as opposed to the old west and there's there's a lot of guns that pop up here some for reasons that are good some for reasons that are criminal do you feel that it it is making any kind of statement on guns? Do you hope it's making any kind when of statement? When you say opposed to the Old West, it's kind I, of like the Old West. It's more, you know. Well, right. I, right. People, you know, open carry and all that kind of stuff, you right. know. And it doesn't really take a a stand about, you know, what, you know, one way or the other is a good thing or is a bad thing. You know, my feeling is that I wish we had, you know, a little bit more um, legislation as far as, you know, who's owning the guns and those kinds of things. Yeah. I understand that an unusual thing happened here with the way this movie was edited, where the actors were sort of a part of the process in a way that is not common. Is that true, that as this went along, David invited you into the editing room, effectively, all the actors? Oh, oh, yeah. One of the things that David did that I thought was such a great idea, you know, nowadays, it's different than, you know, years ago when we had dailies, you know, where we would, dailies are... uh, the film that you shot a few days before, and you, you, you know, you would go and be able to see what you came up with, and able to talk to the director about different takes and so forth. But now, since most movies are shot on digital, and you don't have that gathering of the troops, you know, to watch dailies. The nice thing about dailies is you could tweak your work, but it was also a chance to get with the, the guys that you're working with in a kind of a so, semi-social environment. So David. We shot it in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there was a log cabin in the middle of town where they had set up editing bays, and that's where the editing was taking place. And David invited the cast and crew there every weekend to look at the dailies and just hang out and party, you know. (laughs) And that was really, uh, I think it made a big difference, you know, as far as my relationship with Gil Birmingham, who was so wonderful. Yeah, your partner. My partner in the movie. We connected, you know, musically. He's a fabulous guitarist. So on those Saturdays where we would, you know, we'd break out the gits and pick. And, That's uh, great. And just get to know each other that way. And that, uh, that informs the work up on the screen. Oh. So I guess my last question is this. You are as respected as, as any actor. I think you've got your Oscar. You've got a lot of other interests. You've talked about photography and I know sketching and sculpting and painting. So what is it that keeps you doing this as opposed to sitting back and relaxing and playing golf or whatever? What what uh, what's the what's the reason you're still at it? I mean, you even said earlier that you some at the end of each project. Oh, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I think it's a you know a, a, the word that comes to mind as you said ask me that question is just momentum. You know, just there's a you know I've been doing it you know for such a while you know a long time. Even though my my mo is to kind of try to turn down as many movies as I can, I can't, I think of that. What's that Pacino line? You know, I try to get it, and they oh, turn, they bring me back. You know, <laughs> you get these great offers or these great scripts. You know, that you try to you try to turn down. I try to say, oh, I don't want to do it, but God, this story is so good. You know? And I just you know I end up doing it. That's you know probably one reason. But I like the other the idea of retiring is wonderful to me my friend bernie glassman he says you know retiring it's not stopping work it's just putting on a new set of tires you know <laughs> different ones kind of going off road doing some other things because i got like you say i've got a lot of different interests you know but the bottom line is you're not no plans to uh, remove no, this tire no no I'm just, yeah <laughs> keeping the vehicle yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Nice chat.